Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 29 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. So first, I'd like to welcome all you to part two of episode number 29 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or on Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? Well, I'm going to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 23-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd, and each week with this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s, and first talk about my opinion on the song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and then do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, and that is the first part of the show. Then the second part of the show, I dig deep into the history behind the track, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the studio musicians on the track, the whole history behind the artist that did it, and what studio the song was recorded at, and what position it made on the Billboard charts. All that is in the second part of this show. Now, before we move on with this week's episode of the podcast, I wanted to make a quick little disclaimer. Um, If I get something factually wrong on the show, um, I wanted to, first of all, apologize for doing that. I know it kind of looks bad on me because to me it looks like I didn't really thoroughly do my research and I didn't thoroughly um, listen to the episode beforehand before I put it out. Um, but I just want to apologize for that. Um, if I get one or two things wrong uh, from uh, doing a lot of research about each artist and song I talk about each week, it's an honest mistake. I mean, you know, it shows that this podcast is being created by a human and not by a robot, but I do really, really try my best to do a lot of research about the songs and artists I talk about each week, so um, if I get something wrong, I'm sorry, Um, but if I do get something wrong, uh, please let me know. Email me at samltwilliatiCloud.com if I get something uh, factually incorrect. Um, I'll try my best to, you know, listen to each episode before I put it out and uh, fix any of those factual errors that might be in, in each episode, but um, I really try hard to do a lot of research about the songs I talk about and artists to talk about on my show, so that way there aren't any factual errors, though. So this week's episode is going to be a continuation of last week's episode. Part one was all about my opinion and my personal analysis on the arrangement of the Bee Gees song, Gotta Get a Message to You. This week's episode is going to be all about the history behind the Bee Gees and that song. Um, but moving on, let's talk about the history behind the, this band, the Bee Gees, because if you listen to last week's episode and you looked at the name of the artist I talked about in this week's episode, you should know by now that this week's and last week's episode is all about the Bee Gees. And I would imagine that you're probably shocked that last week's song was, in fact, by the Bee Gees if you did, in fact, listen to it. Because you're probably like, wait a minute. This does not sound like the same band that did Staying Alive and Night Fever and More Than a Woman and Inside Out, but it is. Well, the point of this episode is to say that there were very few bands and singers that were around and huge in the 60s, both in UK and in America, that were having major hits in the 60s that were able to still have huge and even bigger hits in the 70s 
and were able to completely reinvent themselves in the 70s with a completely different sound and arrangement with their songs in the 70s and still be relevant in a completely different decade in terms of music. And really, for when it comes to this particular band, when people ask me, so Sam, do you like the BG stuff? Well, my response to that question would be, well, which version of the BGs are you referring to? The 60s version of the band or the 70s version of the band? Well, because there are songs from both versions of the band that I like. But this episode is going to be all about how they made the big transition from the stuff they did in the 60s to the stuff they did in the 70s. And where do they record most of their big hits from the 60s? And what inspired them to write I Gotta Get a Message to You? And what influenced them to write it? And just how this group became a rare example of two completely different versions of the same band. One where both periods of the group did not sound alike at all. But first, let's talk about some little-known but interesting facts about the band. Other than the fact that they originally consisted of three brothers, with a fourth being added on to the group in later on in the 70s, um, a lot of people think that this band originated from Australia. But this is only half true. While the brothers came out of the Aussie music scene in the mid and early 60s, the boys were actually born and were originally from Manchester, England. And they actually first formed as a group in 1958 as kids. And the strong conflict of sibling, sibling rivalry will also negatively affect the band later on the 60s. But for now, let's talk about the origins behind this band. The Bee Gees originally consisted of three brothers, Robin, Barry, and Maurice Gibb. And they were all technically baby boomers born right after World War II, with Robin and Maurice born in 1949, and Barry, who was the oldest brother, was born in 1946, to their father, Hugh Gibb, in Manchester, England. Their dad was also in show business as a band leader with the Hugh Gibb Orchestra in the 50s, so because of that, the brothers got, got their exposure to being in the entertainment industry very early on as little kids in the 50s. And at the time, him and his kids were living in Manchester. And one thing you got to keep in mind is that in the 50s, while America was doing pretty well for themselves after World War II, England, on the other hand, was pretty much in shambles, with their whole economy and way in life was severely suffering after the country was almost completely destroyed during World War II. And the aftermath of that was definitely not pretty uh, for the country. And it was largely because of this that Hugh and his family decided to move to Australia because they were definitely attracted to the better quality of life over there that was being advertised to them while they were staying in England that was prevalent in Australia at the time. So because of that, they made the move from Manchester, England to Australia in August of 1958. But the first incarnation of the group was formed in 1959, I mean, sorry, 1955, when the Gibb family were still living in Manchester. And they were not called the Bee Gees, but they were actually called the Rattlesnakes. The band was originally a skiffle group, and for those of you out there who don't know what skiffle is, it was the British people's interpretation of rock and roll music that was all the rage in America at the time in the mid-50s. This version of the group was heavily influenced by groups such as the Everly Brothers and Eddie Cochran and Cliff Richard. That version of the group disbanded once the brothers moved to Australia in 1958, and it was then that they changed their name to the Bee Gees. And a lot of people think that the name means Brothers Gibb. I mean, it makes sense if you think about it. But 
It is actually a reference to the man that discovered the group. A DJ named Bill Gates, and by the way, this is not the same Bill Gates that Gil Gates that uh, created Microsoft, and Barry Gibbs' metal initials, hence the name the Bee Gees. And uh, they used to perform at an Australian speedway known as the Redcliffe Speedway, and they would be- perform on the speedway's racetrack in the back of a pickup truck, and they're also allowed to collect any money the crowd would throw at them during this event that they would play at. The person who drove the truck that they performed in was a guy named Bill Good, and the group's name was essentially given as a reference to Bill Good, the driver of the truck they used to perform in, and Bill Gates, the guy that ran the entertainment at the Redcliffe Speedway, and Barry Gibbs' initials, hence the name the Bee Gees. The Bee Gees made their first TV appearance in 1960 on a TV show called Moderns, hosted by a guy named Desmond Tester. At the time, the band was living in Queensland, Australia, and the song they performed on the show was a song called Time's Passing, Time is Passing By. And a few years later, the band started to play doing paid gigs at resorts all around the Queensland coast, and it was in 1963 that the group signed their first record deal with Festival Records. They released a few singles on there, but they failed to make any dents on any international charts outside of Australia. By the way, just a quick little footnote. And it was around this time that the Bee Gees recorded um, an early version of a song that later to become a huge hit for the Vogues called Turn Around, Look at Me. But that's a whole other story. Um, and they also, around this time, they also became a supporting act for Chubby Checker and one Chubby performance in Australia. But really, it was around this time that they almost considered getting dropped by their label because they simply could not score a big hit. So sooner or later... They made the switch from Festival Records to Spinning Records after meeting American-born A&R man Nat Kipler, who introduced them to a producer-engineer named Ossie Byrne, who basically showed them how to produce and engineer music And within, within this time. And this is when uh, the brothers became very skilled with producing and engineering and how they were able to basically learn how to do it themselves. And by the way, this is like 1965 and 1966 when this happened. And it was at this time that the group recorded their first official single, Spicks and Specs. But at this time, they were very frustrated with the fact that for some reason, they just could not get a big hit for themselves in Australia or anywhere else for that matter. Um, but they were also taking notice of the enormous amount of bands coming from England uh, that were having huge, huge hits in the UK and in America during the British invasion. And by the way, this is in the mid-60s. Um, they were starting to see way more profitable musical opportunities for a young group of boys in the UK, and they saw a way better chance of succeeding in America recording and writing in their home country than they were being based in Australia. And gotta, gotta, I'm going to reiterate to you that they weren't from Australia. Originally, from, they were from Manchester, England. So naturally, they moved back to their home country of the UK in Manchester, and this is when the ball finally started to roll for the group. When the brothers moved to the UK, they added on a drummer and a guitar player for the group. Um, the drummer is Colin Peterson. Uh, the guitar player is Vince Maloney. Frankly, I'm glad the brothers moved back to England because I personally don't think they would be as well known as they are today, or they would have had the near would have had nearly the amount of commercial success that they had if they had stayed in Australia. Because heck, all the Aussie bands, based bands that had major hits in America in the 60s. 
and this included the Seekers and the Easy Beats, they all moved to England because they saw way better musical opportunities there instead of in Australia. When they first arrived in England in January of 1967, their dad, Hugh Gibb, recorded a demo of them in a, in, in a very bold move, passed on that demo to the current manager of the Beatles, Brian Epstein. Now, at the time, Brian pretty much had his hands full with the Fab Four, since they were in the middle of recording Sgt. Pepper at the time, so he gracefully passed on the group, but he saw a lot of potential in the group, so he passed on the demo to his business partner, Robert Stigwitt, who at the time was working for his company, which was called NEMS, and by the way, this is a pretty brand new company for him. Um, Robert fell in love with the brother's sound, and he signed them to Polydor Records after the audition for him in February 1967. The biggest significance of them being signed to Polydor Records is that at that time, Polydor had a distribution deal with an American label, the one only Echo Records, a subsidiary of a big giant New York R&B slash soul label, Atlantic Records. So what this basically meant was that the brothers finally had their golden opportunity of reaching international success in America with a UK label that had a time, that at the time had strong American distribution with an American label. It's also noteworthy to mention that even though, even with the group's new signing to Polydor Records in the UK, the previous Australian label, Spin, still had the rights to distribute their catalog in Australia and in New Zealand. There's the second single they put out on Polydor was a song called New York Mind Disaster 1941. I will take now take a moment to say that many of the songs that they put out at the time were very much not based off their own personal experiences, but the brothers were really able to create imaginary situations with their lyrics and almost write movie-like songs that were pretending to be in situations that they weren't actually in at the time. They were writing the lyrics to these songs such as being trapped inside of a mind, or in the case of a guy to get a message to you, pretending to be a man who just committed a crime and is now being sentenced to the electric chair after committing that said crime. But really, when the band put out their second single in 1967, many people mistook them for the Beatles, since they sound a lot like them. In fact, Akko released blank copies of the group's second single to indicate that it was a British group with a name that starts with a B, and many DJs thought it was a new Beatles song, since they didn't see the name of the group on their promotional 45s. So, they gave the single a lot of heavy rotation because of that. It's also noteworthy to mention that Robert Sigward also became the group's business manager, as well as producer. And the VGs getting signed to Echo Records also paved the way for another British group, to get signed to Akko not too long after the Bee Gees were signed to the same label. Another Robert Sigwood managed group with Eric Clapton in it called Cream. The whole rumors that people thought this band was the Beatles helped get them into the U.S. Top 40 in the spring, early summer of 1967. And then, that was pretty much it after that. But keep in mind, this version of the Bee Gees was not your Saturday Night Fever or Staying Alive or more than a woman Bee Gees. This was a completely different version of the same band 
in the late 60s, I was way less full on the floor and disco and electric piano driven and more organic and avant-garde and very soulful with no falsetto lead vocals, completely unlike the 70s version of this band. But really, this version of the group was way more along the lines of Blue-Eyed Soul, which explains why their second hit single, After New York Mind Disaster, To Love Somebody, was originally intended for Otis Redding to sing. But since the group of brothers had a hard time getting their songs to Otis, since he was mainly not doing other people's songs didn't write at the time, with the exception of Try a Little Tenderness. So instead of trying to push that single to Otis when there was no guarantee he would record it and release it as a single, they decided to do it themselves. And one thing I wanted to say about them in this period is that like the Beatles, the Bee Gees very much, or at the time, were a self-contained band. And one that wrote all their own songs and played on all their own records with the addition of Colin Peterson on drums and Vince Maloney on guitar. The songs were, for the most of the time, written in collaboration between the three brothers, Robin, Barry, and Maurice Gibb, and most of the songs that the Bee Gees were recording at this time were recorded at IBC Studios in London. And while we're at it, let's talk about this specific song. I Gotta Get a Message to You was written by Robin and Barry Gibb, and Barry doesn't really quite remember exactly how the lyrics were formed, except that the song was written about a guy sentenced to death row, and he only had a few hours to live, and he really wants his chaplain to pass on his final message to his wife before he dies. And when they wrote the song, um, Robin felt like they were kind of writing a, mo- a script to a movie when they were in the middle of the session, and they felt like, you know, with the first 10, 20 minutes, they don't really come up with anything. In the last five minutes of the writing session, they com- came up with something like really significant. And But they weren't really in the situation. They were definitely pretending to be in that situation for the sake of the song. But I must say that this song is very moving and very powerful. And by the way, this song was recorded in July 12, 1968 in IBC Studios in London. And Maurice Gibbs was the one who played the bass on this track. He was also heavily influenced by Paul McCartney's bass playing at the time. The other musicians on the recording were members of the Bee Gees, Maurice Gibb on piano, bass, and Mellotron, Vince Maloney on lead guitar, Colin Peterson on drums, and Barry Gibb on rhythm guitar. Robin sings lead on the first and third verse, while Barry sings the second verse, and they all sang backup for each other on this track with Robert Stegwood producing. Now, before we end this episode, I wanted to add in a few footnotes about the Bee Gees. Towards the end of the 1969, sibling rivalry amongst the rest of the band was starting to become more prevalent, and tension was starting to rise amongst the other group members. But they also, at this time, scored an opening slot on Procol Harum's German tour in March of 1968. And really, things started to crumble for the group when Robert Sigwood favored one of the group's songs over the other when it came down to releasing the band's next single after I Started the Joke, which was a song called First of May. Barry's song he sang lead on was chosen as the A-side, and Robin's song that he sang lead on was chosen for the B-side. This angered Robin, and Colin Peterson and Vince Maloney soon left the band after that. But unlike the Beatles, the Bee Gees did not break up at the end of the 60s and at the dawn of the 70s. But they almost did. Because after that happened, Robin Gibb temp- also temporarily left the band. But they kept going without him. And at this time, they did not score any major hits without him. But then they reunited in 1970. The three brothers for their next big hit, Lonely Days, 
Um, and by the way, this is their biggest hit up to that point, peaking at number three, and Lonely Nights. And that single was followed by How Can You Mend a Broken Heart in 1971, their first number one hit. But the point of me saying this is that the Beatles could have had the same fate as the Beatles because the Beatles were pretty much done over by 1970, with the members of that band had already making a lot of noise with their own solo careers. And the Bee Gees could have also broken up by 1969-1970 after they lost Robin Gibb over the 1st of May single. But the important thing to remember is that they didn't break up, and they kept going unlike the Beatles who were done and then broken up by 1970. And it was in 1975 when they simply reinvented themselves starting with Jive Talkin', and their first big disco hit as a band showcasing their falsetto lead vocals was You Should Be Dancing, which was released in 1976. At a time when producing and recording songs became a lot more slick and streamlined and easier to do than in the 60s. And if you're wondering how they got into that whole falsetto lead vocal thing that they made in the 70s, um, well, Barry discovered it one night during a rehearsal and also... They are completely paying attention closely to the music coming out of Philadelphia at the time from black groups such as the Delphonics and the Stylistics. The two groups I just mentioned put male falsetto in the forefront of those songs and they were simply like, well, hey, if they had some success with doing that, we can do that too. And then the falsetto lead vocal for the group was created and they also wanted to lean more towards a more black R&B soul sound and then being signed to a label that had American distribution with ACO Records, a subsidiary of Atlantic Records. This made it really easy for them to transition over to the big boy label Atlantic Records. And while all this was happening, Robert Stigwood stepped down as the group's producer, and Atlantic's head of Hay and R at the time, Arif Martin, took over as the group's producer, even though he didn't produce all their big disco hits. He did produce a couple of them. This also finally allowed the group to move to America, since most of their big disco hits of the 70s were recorded at Criteria Studios in Miami, Florida, but also there were a few that were done in France and in, in Atlantic Studios in New York. At this time, they were becoming way bigger than they were, were in the 60s, and it also helped be featured in the landmark 70s disco movie, Saturday Night Fever, starring John Travolta. And they also scored six number one hits in a row in the late 70s. Totally unheard of at the time. But by this time, they had a completely different sound from the stuff they did in the 70s. But I hope this episode of the podcast will do a good job of showing people exactly what they sound like in the 60s. And will show people the difference between the 70s Bee Gees and the 60s Bee Gees. Two completely different versions of the same band. So that concludes part two, episode number 29 of my 60 music podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I am Sam Williams, and if you liked, if you found the information I talked about on this week's artist to be interesting, and you learned some really cool, interesting facts about them that you didn't already know about them, uh, you can email me at samltwilly at iCloud.com. And uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at iHeartOldies and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Um, one more thing I want to say is that um, I might be having a special guest on my show pretty soon. Uh, I talked to him the other night, and he said that he'd be interested in coming on to my show. Now, he isn't from the 60s, but the cool thing about him is that he's actually around my age, and he loves this music just as much as I do. So when, when I have him on the show... I'll have him do some promo for his stuff, and I might have him play one of his songs, and 
you know, and have him promote what he's doing. But we're also going to be talking about, you know, uh, our different artists and songs from the 60s. And it's going to be a really good conversation between, not between me and someone who was there, but between someone who wasn't there, but really likes his music just as much as I do, and someone that was that's pretty young, around the same age as me. Um, I'll let you guys know when uh, he gets on the show. I have to, I have to talk to him and find out what his schedule is like, and see when he'll be free to come over and do it. And also, um, the next couple episodes of the show are gonna mainly going to be focusing on some of the lesser known artists from this era, or more or less lesser known to the people my age. Because I feel like most people my age know about the Bee Gees. I mean, they're pretty well known. So I'm gonna really focusing on some of those really obscure little one or two hit wonder groups that many people my age are not very familiar with or and these songs obviously might ring a bell to you if you were born in the 60s or born in the 50s or you know and you uh and you're baby boomer but you probably don't know these songs if you're my age or around my age and I'm 23 so um anyway so I'm Sam Williams and uh, thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast the millennial throwback machine until next week please keep things groovy